Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we have a justice, California Associate Supreme Court Justice Mariano Florentino Cuellar. That's right. He will be the second member of California Supreme Court that we have welcomed to The Breakdown. The first, of course, being Chief Justice Tani Cantil Saka'ue. We are very excited to have Justice Cuellar join us soon. But first, Scott, let us, as always, talk about the news of the week. Uh, big news in San Francisco this morning. London Breed, yeah, the mayor, uh, kind of in a somewhat surprising. I, I, we hadn't really been thinking about who she might endorse for president, but she endorsed Mike Bloomberg, uh, saying that uh, she had talked with him and looked at his platform and that he was the guy she thought could beat Trump uh, more than anyone else. And, of course, she's had a long relationship with him in terms of city programs. He put a lot of money into defeating the uh, anti-vaping ban uh, on the ballot. So uh, she's like the third Bay Area mayor to endorse him. That's right. Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs, uh, San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo, another eight to a dozen mayors across the country, um, all of whom in that at least category, have all benefited from both his training program that he does at Stanford. This is for mayors. Um, and also it's called like kind of a boot camp. And then grants that his foundation gives out. Um, I was reading a New York Times story that said of the eight or nine mayors that had endorsed him through the end of last year, all of them had gotten, or most of them had gotten some money um, well, from they- him. And, and, and it's interesting, right, because you do think about Somebody like London Breed going from Kamala Harris, who's this woman of color, and there was so much talk about diversity, um, and now we're in a place where the brass tacks are really coming yeah, out Yeah, I mean, I think she was a little bit on the defense today when she was asked about that. She said, well, Bernie Sanders isn't diverse, and Donald <laughs> Trump isn't diverse, uh, but— We were know, expecting that Trump endorsement, really, from her, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, you know, there were two other big city mayors, uh, Daryl Steinberg in Sacramento and Eric Garcetti in L.A., who endorsed Biden, we should mm-hmm. say, as well. Um, but, you know, I think the Democrats are really, I don't want to say in a panic, uh, but they're very nervous about how this primary is shaping out. It's way too early to be panicking, hitting the panic button. But, you know, I, there is no clear front runner, and it's not clear who can I beat Trump right Yeah, now. I don't want to be too cynical here, but I do wonder if you look at the polls, and certainly Bloomberg's very expensive ad campaigns are working. He is climbing in the polls. But, like, is is this... You know, are these mayors doing this really because they think he will be the nominee or because they have this relationship? I mean, I'm not saying it's like not 
honest and that they don't believe in him. But it is interesting to me after so many people either held back or really went with, you know, in that case, their home state senator yeah. to kind of throw their weight behind the guy who's not in the I top I think if tier. you're a mayor, though, A, you appreciate another mayor. Uh, they know what it takes. He knows what it takes to run a big city. And, you know, they are less ideological because they are the chief executives of those cities. They're the CEO of the city. And I think that uh, in the time that they've probably talked with him in that leadership institute at Harvard, they have probably gotten an impression of the kind of president he would be. Uh, maybe that's a little naive it's on my part. 50 billion bucks doesn't hurt It doesn't either, hurt. But, it know. doesn't hurt. But, uh, you know, it also kind of gives access to him that, uh, you know, maybe they haven't had to certainly or Pete right, Buttigieg, do, for these example. Do, yeah, a lot of these folks do have personal relationships. Um, but, yeah, I was surprised, honestly, coming from uh, Reed. Although, as you say, I think from a political perspective, they may line up fairly closely on their politics. Um, but it is certainly, you know, I think to your point, the the Iowa caucuses are nigh. <laughs> and um, I think Democrats are getting a little bit, even the ones who maybe aren't coming out like like these mayors and endorsing, everybody's just getting nervous because we've been waiting for this moment for a while. Yeah. And I think, you know, some may sit it out. Gavin Newsom hasn't made an endorsement yet. Uh, Kamala Harris hasn't made an endorsement. They may just, Kamala may be thinking vice president, you know, who knows? She may not want to put her money on the on the wrong horse. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, Willie Brown has also weighed in on behalf of Mike Bloomberg, said good things about him. <laughs> Who knows? You, when you read something in yeah. Willie's column, you never know what where that's coming where, from why, or why. why. But yeah. uh, Well, let's should we move on to impeachment. Uh, that's been sort that of the, the big, big story. story. And of course, uh, Adam Schiff in Los Angeles has been the lead house manager on that. He got some not expected praise from actually Lindsey Graham, uh, who said he'd done a great job. Uh, Lindsey had Graham had been the, one of the House managers in 1999 when Clinton was impeached, uh, and I think the, also the, one, the Republican senator from Louisiana, John Kennedy, uh, saying nice things, very eloquent. Well, I mean, you can see, and I think to some extent you saw this in the House hearings, but really at this point, his experience as a prosecutor and really, you know, how carefully he is trying to lay out this case. Um, I spent a fair amount of time in the car yesterday, so I got to listen to a lot of it. Not a lot of new things right yet. This is really if you have been paying attention to this whole impeachment inquiry. Nothing Adam Schiff said the first day or really the second day is earth shattering. But if you haven't been paying attention which I'm sure a lot of people in the public and even some the, senators right, haven't. Right, right, Well, I was thinking, you know, of course, the 100 senators are the jurors. And if you think about jury selection, uh, I think all 100 <laughs> of them would have been dismissed for conflicts of interest yeah, right. of one kind or another. Uh, but they are, in many cases, having to listen to the evidence in full for the first right. time. They're not even allowed to use their cell phones. I mean, they're really... Apparently, they can only drink water and milk. Water, <laughs> milk, send notes via you know, handwritten notes to the chief justice. Uh, so uh, we'll see. I don't, I don't know if it's going to change any hearts and minds, but... Uh, it, it... You know, I have this moment. I, I think, yes, money, if we were betting, you would say this is going to end the way we've all expected it to since this whole thing began in, what, September or whatever. But you never know. Like, you you don't know. Something crazy could happen. Um, I do also want to give a shout-out to our other Californian who's been up there also presenting the case, Zoe Lofgren. Um, a veteran. A veteran, a veteran of impeachment, of impeachment. She's been in all three. Um, and she... Uh, the recent ones, not Andrew Jackson's, obviously. <laughs> but, Andrew um, Johnson. Johnson, Jesus. But, you know, she also, I think, um, really brought her experience as a long-standing member of the House, um, again, like it, it, we we're so used to seeing on both in both parties these folks on TV kind of yelling at each other a lot and things. And I do think that um, they, they've come in in a very sort of measured, interesting way. And I, you know, 
We'll be continuing to watch our Californians. All right. We will take a short break now. When we return, we will be joined by Supreme Court Associate Justice Mariano Florentino Cuellar. You are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And today we are talking with a man who was born in Mexico, went to count them, three Ivy League schools, worked in two presidential administrations, and is now one of California's Supreme Court Associate Justices, Mariano Florentino Cuellar. Welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here and having heard this program before and knowing you cover civic affairs generally and not just partisan things, which I can't talk about. I'm really glad to be here. What do your friends call you? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> my friends call me friends, uh, <laughs> which is nice. Uh, when they I call try you by to your name. You know? Do what I can to make sure they continue to call me that. Um, my, I am actually named, my, my full name is Mariano Florentino Cuellar. And uh, I got stuck with such a long first name because my parents were not able to agree with each other about whose father I would be named after. Ah. So their solution, which uh, maybe uh, tells us something about the way we sometimes resolve things in civic institutions, is you try to make the name longer and accommodate everybody. Do it all. Do it all. Right. So Mariano was my mother's father. And Florentino was my father's father. So and who's and Cuellar is your Cuellar is my father's last name. Okay. Ortega is my mother's last name. And so what are your parents? What do you like? What do you? So what do your, your What does your wife call you? <laughs> oh, if she were here, she'd have a field day with that. She has <laughs> her very distinctive Depends names. Depends on the time of day. But you know, I, people call me Tino sometimes. Uh, and Tino works because that was actually what my grandfather and my father's side was referred to. He he was named Florentino mm-hmm. as well. My mother, probably because she enjoys that I have both names, likes to call me Mariano Florentino. Oh, she does. She, yes. she did the that's a mouthful for most everybody, certainly for my kids. Or well, Justice Cuellar yeah. works, too. Yeah. Um, well, we By wanna... the way, my kids are grateful that they didn't get um, names that are quite <laughs> complicated. Well, we want to go back and talk about um, your really remarkable youth and, and sort of path here. But first, I'm curious because you did not come from a sort of typical background to become an associate justice. You were plucked out of academia by former Governor Jerry Brown. 
What was that first phone call or conversation like with his staff or whoever called you? Like, was it a total shock? Did you have any idea this was coming? What went through your mind? It was unforgettable. And to this day, you know, I I must say it is such a privilege to serve the public. I feel lucky that I am a Californian, that I'm an American. So the chance to work in our government and do what we can to serve the public is a real privilege. I had had the good fortune of doing that before in the federal executive branch and Hoped again to work in government at some point, but didn't know when or where. And um, you're right that I had spent much of my career as a university administrator, as an executive branch official, as a professor. So uh, when I got that call, I didn't quite know what to make of it. I got a call from uh, a senior member of the team of the governor, who is actually now uh, one of my colleagues (laughs) on the court. Joshua (laughs) Groban. Justice Joshua Groban, who actually is the only... Uh, bona fide Southern Californian because he lives in Southern California. And he was the governor's legal affairs secretary. Correct. And and a thoughtful member of that team on a bunch of different fronts. But he called and said, look, I don't want to get ahead of my boss, but I just want you to know uh, we're thinking about this. Would you be open to thinking about it? And I, I was kind of torn at first because I loved what I was doing. At that time, I was a professor at Stanford. I was teaching uh, classes that I found interesting, writing up stuff. And I just got an opportunity to start leading an institute that dealt with international yeah. studies. So I was working on things like cybersecurity, global public health, uh, governance problems, anti-corruption, trying to figure out how do you feed the world and also prevent uh, the environment from degrading. And I expected to be doing that for, I don't know, 10 more years. But you didn't say, well, let me think about it. I'll get back to you. Uh, well, well, I it's very rare to get a call f- like that from <laughs> Sacramento. So I do remember talking it over with my wife. And uh, she said at one point something that really stuck in my mind. She said, don't know how this is going to go, but be the change you want to see. Like if you want to really serve the state of California, you don't know where this will go. You don't know the kinds of cases you'll work on. You have a sense of some of the job and you know you can do it. So why don't you, you know, just have a chat with the governor? What was that chat like? Well, Governor Jerry Brown is a very distinctive individual. He's very smart. He's thoughtful. He's practical. And, you know, when you talk to him as I know you have, you've uh, worked on his history, the sense you get is of somebody who has um, benefited from the experience of doing some of the jobs he's done more than once, which mm-hmm. is really rare, being the youngest governor, the oldest governor. And uh, I guess I would say he started with a series of ideas that were definitely relevant to the court, but I didn't at first understand where the conversation was going. <laughs> that he sounds like to, all our conversations. <laughs> he wanted to talk about technological change. He wanted to talk about the balance between the old and the new. He wanted to talk about what it meant to sort of honor social commitments and how would I think about that. Talked a little bit about philosophy. And then gradually the conversation moved a little more to what is the role of a state Supreme Court? How do you think about the common law? And you got the sense that here's somebody who wants to be prudent about what it is a government can do and what it cannot do. It's pretty pragmatic. Yeah, he's well curious. And I think a lot of those questions you're talking about are absolutely relevant, right, to being a justice, but maybe a little further back. Well, let's talk about your history, because as we mentioned at the top, um, you were born in Mexico in a border town, uh, Matamoros, and you did you always cross the border to come into Texas to go to elementary school, or did that happen when you were a little older? So it was actually common at the time for people who lived in Mexico, and it still is it to still some degree, is, yeah. to cross the border fairly frequently. And so while I was not always crossing the border to go to school as a kid, it was pretty common to, you know, one time, my grandmother, who was an extraordinary cook, like I grew up 
in the central part of Matamoros. My mother's side of the family lived maybe five blocks away from my father's side of the family. So you can imagine there were like errands I was running to butcher shops and peanut shops and, you know, fruit shops and just, you know, helping to clean up, doing stuff back and forth. And in the course of being a kid in that environment, you're being exposed to all kinds of people from all over the Mexico, it really all over Latin America, mm-hmm. because even then people were coming to the city, sometimes crossing. And in that milieu, one day, I must have been like five or six years old, my grandmother, who was a terrific cook, asked me what I wanted to eat. And I said, McDonald's. <laughs> so she actually crossed the border with me and we went to McDonald's. Years later, I felt terrible about having said that because she was such an amazing cook. She could make truly miracles happen in the kitchen. And I couldn't imagine what patience it must have taken for that extraordinary person to say, all right, the kid wants to go to McDonald's. <laughs> That's you so know, funny. We have the money. Let's go. Uh, but anyway, long story short, it wasn't until much later when I was around junior high school. Okay. that f- Maybe a little bit earlier, I did a little bit of elementary school. But junior high is what I remember most because I was doing mostly walking to the border, taking public transportation to school. And it sticks in your mind how you're going from one world that is – very different from the other, and yet you're seeing how they're interdependent in some way. Yeah. And I think your dad eventually got visas for you and the family to come Correct. over. Is that Correct. right? So, were, go ahead. So my dad was a teacher by profession, an educator, and my mom also was kind of in the education world. And when I was about 13 or 14, we were lucky to get green cards. And my dad found a job teaching high school of all places in the Imperial Valley in California. So go figure. We were going from one border community to another. And I was going to school at the time on scholarship back in, in Brownsville, Texas, at a Catholic school. So we moved to a very public, remarkable high school, Calexico High School, where my dad taught Spanish for a while. And I remember actually feeling so excited to be moving to California. But also, I mean, if you've been to the Imperial Valley, you know it's not like San Diego. Not the jewel right. of the <laughs> exactly. well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful rural, in its yeah. own way. The stars are gorgeous. The sunsets. There are tons of extraordinary, wonderful people. But... But it's not the California that comes out of the movies as much, right? Well, yeah, so, I mean, was it hard too to leave that like extended family and community that you guys had been such, you know, so integral in? I think it was in some ways. You know, uh, my my grandmother on my dad's side had passed away, but we still had so much cousins and uncles and aunts and just kind of the environment we knew. Even though Brownsville was different from Matamoros, I'd just been around that milieu yeah. for long enough that it it did represent a bit of a change. But I gotta be honest, like. I was excited to come to California. I felt like there was a new chapter starting, particularly because when I was going to school in the U.S., not knowing if my future would be in Mexico or the U.S., it was just sort of harder to imagine the next few years. But once I got there, I got uh, to, to Calexico, I got pretty excited. If you're just joining us, I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and today we are talking with California Supreme Court Associate Justice Mariano Florentino Cuellar, who goes by a lot of names we're learning. Including Tino. <laughs> Including Tino. Uh, you went to Harvard undergrad. Uh, then you went to Yale Law School. Then you went to Stanford to get your Ph.D. Was it always sort of, were you sort of um, groomed in a sense by your parents? I mean, did they expect you to really aim high uh, as, as when you were young? I hope if there are any kids and parents listening to this, they, they will hear what they probably already know in their hearts. When your parents have like a belief in you and high expectations, it gives you an enormous advantage. And I was really lucky in that respect. I think my parents, they didn't have ideas that I was going to be a lawyer. There were no lawyers in my family, but they absolutely wanted me to go as far as I could. They encouraged me to go far uh, geographically as well, which is not a small thing. And although, you know, in all of our lives, probably there are complexities of like, how do you make it happen? How do you then reconnect with family and help people out when they need it? 
I felt like um, there was never a question that they wanted me to do everything I could to get somewhere. Um, but I will also say that, you know, while I got a great education at places like Harvard and Yale and Stanford, some of the best education I got was in Calexico in two respects. There were phenomenal, very passionate teachers. Didn't get paid much, but I think of my French teacher, my Spanish literature teacher, uh, one of the math teachers I had. You could just tell they made magic happen in the classroom, and that stuck with me. Certainly, I feel like when I compare the impact that I hope to have on students at a place like Stanford when I teach, I can't imagine that there's ever going to be as much of an impact as those teachers in the classroom in a place like Calexico, where not everybody's got the support network who's in the classroom. The other thing that really had an impact on me is 70% of my uh, student classmates were limited English speakers. And they were working as hard as they could to master English, but all the things that they had to do, their families had to do, and then the school had to do to help them stuck in my mind. And then, you know, years later, now I've had a chance to work on language access in the courts. And I think of my classmates in Calexico pretty often. Did you grow up speaking English at home? Like, how did you? So uh, I'm one of the many millions of Californians who grew up speaking Spanish at home. Uh, now, having grown up on the border, having had a chance to go to schools in the U.S. pretty early on, I did know English. I felt comfortable in English. Okay. I even, you know, remember dreaming in both languages. But Which is the true sign of bilingualism, I, I think so. Yeah. And, uh, and then you wonder ultimately what that's telling you about your views of the world. But, but I, I, I did speak Spanish at home and try my best to make sure my kids learn a little bit of it. And my wife, she uh, is um, Korean-American, and uh, she's also done her part to try to get the kids to have a little bit of Korean as well. There's so, always talk about diversity on the bench, and I think certainly Jerry Brown has done his part to diversify the state Supreme Court as well as the lower courts. And I'm just wondering, a part of the, the argument for diversity is that people have different experiences, not just ethnic, racial, but also backgrounds, public defenders and defense attorneys, prosecutors. How do you think, you know, what you've been talking about, your upbringing, your childhood, has stayed with you, you know, That's as a, a judge? That's a great question. You know, I am so lucky to have the colleagues I do around the, the conference table on the court. It's really amazing. Like, there is not a single Wednesday morning conference where we're talking about what cases to grant review on that I'm not learning something from my colleagues. And I love that we have many things in common. We all love to serve California. We're public servants. We, you know, we have a, a willingness to listen. But we've had different life experiences. So I feel like people often will think about this issue in terms of one or another particular characteristic. I look around the table, see my colleagues, and see everything that is so distinctive about them. You know, where they went to school, what their family background might be, where they geographically, you know, Stockton is in the room, Pasadena is in the room, Calexico is in the room. And uh, to go back to one of your earlier questions about how my background is a little different from many yeah. people who end up on a court like a state Supreme Court, I love the fact that many of my colleagues have the experience of being a trial court judge because, honestly, the trial courts carry the bulk of the load in our system. They're the ones who are dealing with literally millions of cases. But then you've got people who have worked in big executive branch agencies, been professors, private sector lawyers, so we all benefit from each other. So you brought up your wife, and she is a trial lawyer, right? Or she she got a— District she, court judge. A district court judge. Um, she started off actually in the trial judge, courts in sorry. California, right, yeah, as a judge, and then she moved on to the federal trial court. Federal trial court. She um, and she was nominated for the ninth court, but it was blocked. I'm just curious, like— was that a weird conversation? Like, you're like, okay, I'm a Stanford professor, and you're a judge, and I'm getting nominated to the Supreme Court? 
Uh, the short answer is I can't imagine ever having done this without my wife and her <laughs> wisdom or don't mess it up and don't do, you know, don't put this or that in the, the speech that you're going to give when you're going to explain why you want to be a judge. Um, it's it's really just terrific. I'll put it this way. Probably a lot of people listening have the experience of having a spouse or a close friend who may not be doing exactly the same job you are, but is enough in your orbit that you're learning from each other. You're kind of you have the lingo. If your kids are kind of making some kind of argument that is not making sense, you will tell them that the motion's denied. Or, <laughs> you know, something that'll get across that you kind of understand each other. Off the record, yeah, in my I, case, married to a journalist. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, because let's remember, right, it's, it's a similar world in some respects. She has clerks. I have clerks. She has to try to follow the law. I try to follow the law. Uh, we have to deal with the unexpected sometimes. But at the same time, it's also different, federal versus state, trial right. court versus Supreme Court. So it's always interesting to just reflect with each other about the profession. You mentioned I, that you don't have trial court. Uh, you were not a judge before you were appointed. And neither were the three other now justices that Jerry Brown appointed. Uh, what difference does that make having a, now a majority of the Supreme Court that have never sat on the bench until the top court? So it is... I think it makes it all the more important that we have some fantastic colleagues that do bring that experience to the table. And nobody's shy on this court, right? So people will say, oh, you know, you might think about it from the trial judge's perspective. And having worked on X, Y, or Z case, actually, I can tell that if we go with this particular formulation, it might actually be a little hard for a judge to implement. To be honest, like, although that's not been my experience, it's not so far from my mind for two reasons. One is, when you're married to somebody, like your sensibility and theirs does get connected. I do feel like Lucy's learned something from my experience as a university professor, administrator. But I've learned a ton from just watching her in the courtroom, hearing her decide cases, just seeing how she's thread the needle. But the other way it's not so far from my experience is if you look at what I used to write as a law professor, a lot of it is about one word. It's implementation. How do you take these high-minded ideas these goals of like, you know, protect every child or make sure the police behave responsibly or, you know, treat people with due process and turn it into something practical. And that I think often matches the sensibility of my trial court colleagues. So you you said earlier, you know, I can't talk about current events and we know that we respect that. But I'm curious, like a lot of people who have aspirations of being a judge are very careful about what they say or write ahead of being appointed. This seems in some ways like not necessarily something that you, you know, thought was going to come. And um, we don't have a ton of time to talk about it, but you worked in, under both the Clinton administration and Obama administration um, on policies that are, you know, pretty, people understand, crack cocaine versus um, cocaine sentencing, uh, don't ask, don't tell. How do you deal with that track record? And, and do people sort of confront you with it or, at all as a judge? I actually think people understand when they've looked into this, as you have, that the jobs are different, right? When you're, I mean, the, the commonality is two things, right? Public service and integrity. In, in that regard, I think whether you're working at the White House or at the Treasury Department or at the Supreme Court of California, you want to have both of those orientations. But then I would say when you're part of a team in an administration, you're trying to help the president implement what he um, has been elected to do. And that will take some difficult trade-offs sometimes. You do have to be cognizant of the law. You have to be thinking, well, how do I apply this to that court decision? What are the limits of the powers the president has relative to what has to be done through legislation? When you're in a court, 
The bulk of your job is to take the legal commitment society has made. What we've promised we're going to do, whether it's in a constitution or in a statute, and to make it real, to resolve disputes that way. Now, one way, though, that the jobs also overlap is if you get involved in the managerial administrative side of the courts, which, you know, let's remember this is the biggest court system in America. There are millions of cases, thousands of judges. Then the sort of notion of you're trying to reach a goal to make the courts more accessible, to make them more open to the public, that feels to me a little bit more like what I used to do in the executive branch. There is uh, going to be a vacancy on the high court. Uh, Justice Ming Chin is going to be resigning, retiring at the end of August. What do you think the court needs uh, in term for, from? And you can answer that anyway. It could be somebody who's a Star Trek fan. I mean, like what <laughs> as you are. I mean, what do you, what do you what do you think uh, would be helpful? Well, I would like Justice Ming Chin to beam right back to the court in some respects <laughs> because, I mean, look, he, I, I will. You asked me about the phone call from Jerry Brown's office. By the way, there was then another phone call from Governor Brown when he said, "Like, I want we to go forward with this," but but another phone call I remember at the very beginning was from Justice Ming Chin where he was just like, "Welcome to the court," and just in in a few minutes he completely like demolished any concern or hesitation I might have about what it would be like to have these colleagues with so much experience with time on the trial court bench. So I'm really going to miss him. I do think that it's always interesting because the dynamic among the seven of us is cordial. But one addition of one person in a way changes all the subtleties, like how it is that the conversation proceeds Civility. when the humor comes in. So I, I will miss Justice Chin, but I'm certainly very interested to see what the next chapter of the court is going to be like. All right. About 45 seconds left. We know you are a Comic-Con attendee and speaker, <laughs> Star Trek fan. Um, tell us, like, is, is sci-fi, is that is that what you do in your free time for fun? Well, what motivates me is trying to understand how the world is changing. That's why I'm interested in artificial intelligence, okay. like not in science fiction. But I used to ride that bus going from, you know, the border to my school in Brownsville and read science fiction novels because I felt like I wanted to understand where we were going. And I'm still trying to figure that out. Will you let us know when you if you figure that out? I hope that we'll all <laughs> let each other know. Are you reading any sci-fi right now? Uh, I am. I'm rereading Dune by Frank Herbert, oh, nice. which is terrific. Uh, and then there are some really, really nice um, uh, short stories by um, a guy um, – Ted Chung, I think is his name, who wrote the story on which the movie Arrival is based. And I just find it um, awe-inspiring to think about how language can tell us so much about the future. Well, Justice Cuellar, with his book recommendations, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Great to be That'll here. do it for this edition of Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Jeremy Siegel. Our engineer is Seal Muller. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinny Tong, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. That'll do it. We'll see you next week. Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org/podcast. 
That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.